In mid-July 1831, Joseph Smith and a few Mormon missionaries visited Independence, Missouri. After arriving, the prophet received a revelation designating Independence as the center place or the future city of Zion or the New Jerusalem. Joseph and several Mormon missionaries dedicated a special plot of land upon a lot not far from the courthouse for a future temple. This wasn't to be just any temple, but the millennial temple to which Jesus would return before the saints could construct their house of the Lord. They were driven north in 1833, and then five years later, they were chased out of the entire state, leaving behind their dreams of Zion and temple building. But as the main body of saints moved to Nauvoo and then to the west, what happened to the expectations? Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast. I'm Brian Hales, and today we have with us, Gene Adams, who is the author of a book that deals with the temple lot at Independence, Missouri. We're also joined by my dear wife, Laura Harris-Hales, who will be helping out with some of the questions and comments throughout. Welcome, Laura. I'm going to be flying co-pilot. We haven't ever tried this before, so we'll have to hear from our listeners if they like it or not. Someone suggested that we talk about why you should listen to Elias Perspectives podcast. And I would say one thing is there's a lot of folklore out there, especially about Missouri and the Missouri Temple. And uh, is that a gathering place or not? So, Jean, you're an accountant by training. How did you get into your studies of Missouri? Well, that's a good question. I get asked that all the time. What's an MBA and an accounting major from the University of Utah doing in this world of Mormon history? The simple answer is, is really this. I, I have a Mormon heritage, but the thing that really changed my perspective in terms of an interest area took place in Mountain City, Tennessee, my first week in the mission field, when I was handed a manual with a torn-off front page, History of the Church for Children. And I was told that that's what I'm teaching and I was absolutely fascinated and absorbed, and, and I still have that manual, as a matter of fact. Well, why don't we get started with some of our questions regarding the Temple Lot and Independence? And that's in Missouri. Yeah, for that's in Missouri. For those of our Missouri. listeners who may not be so familiar with the whole Temple Lot thing. You've written an entire book that deals with a plot of ground there in Jackson County, Independence, Missouri. Why is there a plot of ground that is important to LDS history? Well, that plot of ground is the direct result of um, revelation to Joseph Smith that goes back to the fall of 1830, where he calls and sends forth the first missionaries of the church to the borders of the Lamanites, which was readily understood at that time and place to be the far reaches of what was then the furthest most western state in the United States, Missouri, and there the Lord would give them further light and information. Following up on the missionaries and going to 
what turns out to be Jackson County, Missouri, which is the westernmost county in the westernmost state at that point in time. This is 1830. The missionaries arrive in 1831, and Joseph and others start arriving in July of 1831. In July of 1831, after he arrives, mid-month, he receives a revelation that signifies and designates independence as the center place for the future city of Zion or the New Jerusalem, and a spot for the temple is lying westward upon a lot not far from the courthouse. Joseph Smith shows up in Jackson County and dedicates a temple lot. How big was the property? Do we even know uh, how many square feet were designated for that temple? Was it, was it that specific, or did he just kind of say, hey, it's going to be over there, kind of? Two things, and I think this is really important. One, the plans for the temple had not been designed, released. That doesn't show up till 1833, so it's two years later. But the property that he went on to outside, literally, barely the city limits of the then small village of Independence, uh, which consisted of probably no more than about 20 houses and two or three stores and and a saloon. We're not talking about a big place. This was a piece of property that was under squatter's rights to Jones Flournoy. And a lot of people just don't understand the realities of what was going on in terms of property at that point in time in Independence Area and Jackson County in particular. A lot of people would go onto the public domain and, and squat their land until it was surveyed, and then they'd be able to come back and buy it at a future point in time for $1.25 an acre. But in this particular case in Jackson County, it had all kinds of designated sections of land which were, quote, seminary land, meaning for eventual uh, University of Missouri. And the state actually had been given that land rather than uh, being available. And the state then turned around and was going to charge $2 an acre for it. So these squatters instead of being able to get their property when their whole survey took place back in 1827-28, are now having to wait for more time. And I think the missionaries there that were, would have known what was going on, and Joseph Smith would have been advised. And so to answer your question specifically, Joseph Smith, I think, got permission from Jones Flournoy to venture on to his squatter's rights property. And they just kind of hacked their way up through the, the forest and the trees and picked the spot that he felt inspired and dedicated the temple lot at that point in time. We know that the saints were driven out of Jackson County in 1833 and later 1838. They were driven right out of the state. What happened to the ownership of the temple lot at that point? Did the saints, did the church, Joseph Smith, own the plot? Or were they still trying to get ownership rights to it? Uh, No. What happens is because Jones Floyd is a squatter of the property, uh, the property's uh, been announced by the state that it would be for sale in December of 1831. This clarifies, I think, a lot of things in my mind. And, and you asked the question in terms of the myths and all that sort of thing. The reason I got onto this whole thing, Laura, is, is because one day I, I really asked this hard question. I said, what doesn't make sense that Joseph Smith and a group of guys would wander out onto a hillside and dedicate a piece of property and not own it? So that was the first thing. And then when I got into the details of this, somebody else buys it in December. That's several months later. And then we buy it from him a few days after he buys it. So there's got to be a lot more to the story than meets the eye here. And that's what I've been working on for some period of time. 
Flournoy, in 1831 in December, buys the 63.27 acres from the 160-acre quarter section of land that Flournoy purchased from the state for $2 an acre in December 1831. And that was done in the name of uh, Edward Partridge, who was the bishop of the church. That was the standard practice. Most of the properties that the church eventually acquire over the next two years are in his name, not all, but most. So when they get forced out, the question becomes whose property is it? Well, even though it's the churches in the, in the sense that it was church monies that were used to buy it, the fact of the matter is is that to deal with it, you've got to go through Partridge. Partridge then has long since been separated, and now he's in Missouri, and all kinds of things are going on. There, there's issues of taxes haven't been paid. Eventually, people come forward, uh, even after he dies, and... Um, want to buy the property just to clear it up so that there's no question about it. A guy by the name of James Poole, in fact, acquires the property from the Parkridge uh, family, and that includes the Temple Lot property. Remind us again about Edward Partridge and what his role in this was. Uh, Edward Partridge is, is the bishop of the church, clearly not really defined as we probably know it today. But nevertheless, it was a responsible position, and it's to him that Joseph, uh, specifically by revelation, gives the charge that he's supposed to take care of things. Joseph and the others leave about a week after the dedication of the temple and go back to uh, Ohio, and Partridge is left in charge. And even though I don't think we have any document that says so, I fully believe that Partridge had instructions, as soon as this land's available, buy it. And... That's what he did. So let's just recap then what happens during the next few years. Uh, the saints are driven from Missouri, so they, they lose any physical possession of the ground because they're not living there or even close by. And then Joseph Smith is killed, and the, the saints go out to Salt Lake City, and they settle there. Now, none of the leaders have forgotten that there's a revelation saying there's going to be a temple built on that property what happened as far as the ownership goes? Who ended up with it? Did the Utah church somehow retain it? Did the RLDS church? Or what happened in the upcoming decades to that the ownership of that property? The short answer to a long question on that is this. The property, the temple lot specific, is acquired by James Poole. He sends a representative to meet with Brigham Young and others at Winter Quarters to make an arrangement with the Partridges to buy the property. While this somewhat is a shock to a lot of people because it, Joseph had previously said not to sell the property in Jackson County, but the Partridge women and children had no means. They were lucky to have got that far. Brigham basically said uh, she needs the money, let her sell a lot. With that, then she was able to equip the two teams and get her family to Utah. property then goes to... Uh, to pool, and that becomes a contest down the road a little bit more. So that's what you're asking next. Yeah, well, we understand that it was, it is owned today by the Church of Christ Temple Lot, which is also called the Hedrakite. So give us just kind of a brief overview of, of how they came to own that property. All right, well, basically, Poole ends up selling it to two other guys, and uh, they have the area then 
annexed to the city of Independence. That property then is divided into lots, and the lots uh, are available for sale to different people, and they and they are bought. This all begins in the 1850 period, and then um, in 1864, a group of uh, saints in North Central Illinois calling themselves the Church of Christ under the leadership of Granville Hedrick. Um, Granville Hedrick receives a a a revelation in 1864 that says that he is supposed to uh, take his uh, saints and return to Jackson County and basically redeem the land. And uh, that includes uh, going back and buying the temple lot. So John Hedrick goes back in 65, a couple others go in 66, and then in 1867, Pretty much the membership of the Church of Christ, as they're calling themselves now, return to Jackson County in February. John Hedrick begins buying uh, the temple lot. He buys three lots, and then over the next few years, uh, William Eaton buys five lots, and the, together they have eight contiguous lots, which includes the spot where Joseph Smith dedicated the temple lot. When I was reading your book, Upon the Temple Lot where you go step-by-step how this property changes and what the Hedrickites do with the land and their quest to build a temple on the land, it seemed so foreign to me. It seemed really Old Testament-y because the Jews right now and back in the Old Testament, they wanted to build a temple on a certain plot of land. Do you know why... The significance was so strong with this temple? I think the answer to that goes back to the revelation of Joseph Smith that says it's upon this spot that the temple is going to be built. And he's specifically talking about the millennial temple and the return of Jesus Christ at uh, the commencement of uh, his return to the earth. And therefore, that spot is sacred and has been considered such by all the various expressions of the Restoration since the earliest days of the church. Do you want to talk about your favorite court case now? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So by the 1870s, this area is owned by the Church of Christ Temple Lot. They're not affiliated with the RLDS Church, and they're not affiliated with the Utah Church. So you've got three different groups that are interested in this particular parcel. What happened in the 1890s uh, regarding the ownership that became important to the Utah church, even though they weren't trying to gain possession of it at that time? Prior to the 1890s, one step back about three years previous, is the, uh, the, the rhetoric from being cooperative and so forth between the Church of Christ and the RLDS Church at that point in time apparently just kind of fell apart when the RLDS Church filed a notice to vacate against the Church of Christ, meaning that they felt like they had the proper ownership rights to that temple because they were the survivor, legitimate church of the original Joseph Smith Church. Well, obviously, they didn't acquiesce to that. In fact, went ahead and built their first building on the on the property, which I think probably further exacerbated their their feelings about the whole thing. The result of which is in 1891, then they file uh, a court case in the uh, we think of them as district courts, but they were called circuit court at that point in time, 
And that's, that's the beginning of a lengthy four-and-a-half, five-year process known as the uh, Temple Lot case, whereby they tried to gain possession of that land because they felt that they were the legitimate church and therefore Edward Partridge was acting in for and behalf of them. That part of the case goes on for a long time with affidavits and testimonies taken in various places, including in Salt Lake City. The Temple Lot case really wasn't important, the outcome of it, to the Utah church. And yet we've heard quite a bit about the Temple Lot here in Utah. And actually, I have personally read all 1,850 pages and have... I've read most of them. (laughs) Get a life, people. (laughs) (laughs) But the reason that it is important to the Utah church has to do with some of the testimony. Can you tell us a little bit about what was said that has later become so important? Besides the actual piece of property itself, this two and a half acres at the time, that was so important was legitimizing the beliefs of the RLDS church in terms of them being the survivor of Joseph Smith's original church. As such, they had their own agenda in terms of specific doctrine. One of those items, specifically the, the, the kind of the hot item, was the whole matter of plural marriage or polygamy. And the second one was the succession issue in terms of how one becomes president of the church. Those two items really occupy really most of the testimony with a great deal of it having to do with the, did Joseph Smith practice polygamy or did he not? And Phillips, um, in his decision, he pretty much agreed with all the issues that, that the RLDS church was bringing up since the ruling came down on latches, which was you've taken too much time, uh, they kind of felt like, okay, everything else is is fine, and therefore we are the legitimate church. And those things are what we believe, and, and at that point in time, Joseph Smith to them did not practice uh, plural marriage. It was a Brigham Young thing, more or less. Okay, now in 1900, there was a gathering of representatives from all three of the churches, the RLDS, the Church of Christ Temple Lot, and the LDS Church in Utah. Can you tell us a little bit about what was the purpose and the outcome of that, of that meeting? Well, yes. Uh, in 1900, the Church of Christ uh, felt as a church and as a leadership within the church that they were inspired to move forward with building a temple quote, in this generation, end quote, and the time was running out in terms of their definition of a, of a generation. And they approached the RLDS church up in Lamoni, Iowa, about an idea of all of us working together to build the temple, them, the RLDS church, and then the LDS church. At that point in time, the RLDS church basically said, hey, we'll get together with you. It sounds like a good idea, but good luck in terms of going to Utah. So at that point in time, George Cole and George Frisbee actually take the train, go to Utah, and surprise, we're here. We'd like to talk to the First Presidency of the Church. That's in February, and those meetings do take place. The result of that meeting, however, is that the church in Utah, the LDS Church, says, no, we're not going to go back and participate in a three-party get-together. But I believe that that meeting was the impetus for the LDS Church to stop talking and start doing 
And it's just in a matter of, of months that they moved the mission home to, to Missouri, Kansas City. And within three years more, four years, uh, they start buying up their 20 acres on the, on the Temple Lot property. So now you've got an LDS presence, an RLDS presence, and a Church of Christ presence all starting to come together as early as uh, 1900-1904 period of time. And the church then eventually in 1907 moves the mission home to Independence. They start the Leahona Magazine in Independence in 1907. They also uh, incorporate Zionist printing and publishing in 1907, and they actually build a plow factory in 1907. So that really is the LDS church now coming forward with their claims to starting the redemption of Zion, and it's all focused around the temple lot. We still have land in Missouri. We and have a lot of land purchasing in land huh? in Missouri, too. Yeah, yeah. Most recently, I think, Hans Mill. Yes, and also part of that Hans Mill package that... Uh, uh, the LDS Church, through generous donations and led by a couple of other outside groups first, not only acquired Hans Mill, but they got the, the Far West Burial Grounds and a 5,000-acre working ranch. So as much as everybody in this room currently loves to talk about history for history's sake, we're going to take it in a different direction. The thing I liked about your book is that it really spoke to how messy the succession issue really was. I was sitting in gospel doctrine class, bum, 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 right? <laughs> and one person made the comment that she was so glad that in our church, succession went so smoothly. And I thought, well, maybe now, but not then. I've been to the Church of Christ Visitor Center, and you get this sort of deja vu feeling when you're there because you open up their tracks, and they talk about things that we would talk about in the LDS Church, and they talk about missionary work. And I read one magazine where they were talking about this branch in Africa, and they were playing <laughs> this game that had to do with LDS doctrine. I guess the issue is we want to say they're not us, but they sure feel like they're us. And I felt that way with the RLDS Church and even fundamentalist Mormons who feel like, you know, we have the Book of Mormon and we've just broken off. There's a lot out there that we don't realize going on in the Mormon faith tradition. Well, I would agree with your thinking on this. One of the great opportunities and blessings, I think, to me in terms of my interest area in this whole thing is I'd be able to become uh, associated uh, with a lot of people and a lot of the different expressions of the Restoration, especially there in Independence, and I consider them my good friends. And we've had some really great conversations about a lot of subjects uh, besides just history. And while we may differ on certain things here or there, there are a lot of things that are similar. I, I for instance, I've sat in Sunday school at the Church of Christ Temple lot and had a discussion on the Book of Mormon that would be just like what we'd have in a, in a typical Mormon Sunday school class. Uh, nothing that would even remotely trigger you off that you weren't in an LDS uh, Gospel Doctrine class, for instance. That's interesting. Well, Gene, it's been great having you with us here today. A fascinating discussion. Thanks for being with us. You bet. Thank you, Gene.
Be sure to check out ldsperspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.